I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. This episode is sponsored by Fishbrain. Fishbrain is the biggest fish-specific social media platform available on the internet. Designed to bring the fish community together, the app allows you to follow a location, species, or particular angler. Naturally, you do not need to post your secret fishing spots, but it can be fun to share your catch with other passionate anglers. I use Fishbrain not only to see the variety of fish species being caught around the world, but also to spread awareness about proper fish handling. There's a great group of anglers online, and this app truly engages users while sitting atop endless possibilities to spread education and awareness. Go to www.fishbrain.com to learn more, or get it on the App Store or Google Play. Juliet Cohen is the Executive Director for the Chattahoochee Riverkeeper. Chattahoochee Riverkeeper is a nonprofit organization dedicated to protecting and preserving the Chattahoochee River as well as its lakes and tributaries for the people, fish, and wildlife that depend on them. I met up with Juliet for a quick discussion about the river and its current situation. Pardon the pun. from San Juan, Puerto Rico. Are you Puerto Rican? Not by blood, but born and raised there. My parents are from New York and just happened to have a business down there and I grew up there. And then what brought you to the States? Uh, College. I went to college in Miami and then ultimately fell in love with a guy from Atlanta and ended up here. Go figure. Yeah. (laughs) I'm going to ask you something personal. You don't have to answer. Um, How old are you? I'm 43. No, you're not. Yeah. Oh my god, okay, so anyone who's listening to this, you have to understand, Juliet's absolutely gorgeous, and oh, she does you. not look 43. Like, seriously, I could honestly say it's like 26. Oh my god. I'm not kidding. You're my new best friend. No, I'm totally, I'm totally being straight with you. That's okay, awesome. So you, okay, so you've definitely, you've had, you've had some experience under your belt. Yeah. Do you mind if we go into some of that? Yeah, absolutely. Ask me anything. Okay, what did you take in college? I started out as a marine biology major then realized fairly quickly that I was not made to work in a lab and dissect animals and memorize Latin names of critters, and I was more of a policy person. So I switched majors and did an environmental science and public political science major. Okay, and yeah. did you have a goal on what you wanted to do with your career? Always. I've known from a very young age I wanted to do environmental protection, particularly clean water protection. I grew up in a beautiful place. I spent all of my time outside, um, and so it was just kind of natural. I did read a bit of your bio mm-hmm. on the website. I think mm-hmm. I read in 2000, you went back for law. That's that right. right. So I graduated college in 95. Okay, got it. And, you know, wasn't certain how I was going to pursue an environmental and conservation career. First, I moved to D.C. thinking that I could do work on a national level. And I actually really wanted to do international work. And then I realized that everything was local. I learned that over years, you know, everything happens at the local level. But it was also really hard to break into the environmental movement at the national level because there are not a lot of jobs in our movement. Um, They're highly competitive. 
and usually students who went to, you know, Yale and Princeton and Stanford and all the top schools got those jobs. So I kind of worked my way up and then eventually left D.C. and moved to Charleston, South Carolina. Um, Lived there, worked on a massive port expansion project to defeat the project uh, because it was going to change the character of Charleston and the harbor significantly. Were you successful? Yes. Did you defeat it? Okay. We did. It took many years, and the campaign, the effort, continued beyond my years there. As they do. I mean, the company's life is infinite, right? So the corpor- the corporations right. are infinite, so you're always fighting them off. That's right. But did that give you some sort of real ambition or some sort of in, you know encouragement to go, wow, I am doing this for a reason? Absolutely. And and that was the experience where I decided I wanted to go to law school. So that's Excellent. why I went back to school. Yeah. It's okay. because every time I wanted to take the next step or figure out what was the next venue to advocate for or against the project, I had to look to a lawyer to tell me, okay, this is our next strategy. This is how we work the system. And so I finally realized, well, if I want to move forward in my career and you know, be more strategic and, and uh, advanced, I realized it was time to go to law school. I had an inkling that I would do it at some point, but finally I had the real motivation. So 2000 till... I uh, went to law school about 2001 and graduated 2004 in D.C., went back to D.C. for law school. And in the process, after my second year, I got <laughs> pregnant with my first child. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay, yeah. and then this is with the man from? From Atlanta. Atlanta. Exactly. Okay, so then after the baby in school, you thought? Well, after my second year realizing that we were having a child, we had to move one way or another because we were living in a one-bedroom apartment in Adams Morgan in D.C., and we weren't going to be able to raise a child there. So we knew we had to move, so we were either going to move around the D.C. area or just take off completely and move to where our families were. I grew up down the street from my grandparents in Puerto Rico, and they were a huge part of my life. Mm -hmm. So I knew that I wanted to raise my kids near their grandparents, and the options were either New York or Atlanta. I'm not really a New York person, so it was Atlanta. So we moved to where my husband's family was. And so I finished my last year of of law school here in, in Atlanta. So where do you land? Um, my first job was as a staff attorney with the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. Okay. So, that sounds very fancy. So what it means is, if you can imagine, most people know that judges have clerks. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's also a large bank of attorneys that is associated with each Court of Appeals. They handle a lot of cases, too. And so I was in that bank. Well, that's what a staff attorney does. You, so I worked on immigration criminal cases, and some other uh, administrative law type cases like Social Security and things like that. It's a two-year term, and I did that. It was a great experience. By that time, I had two young kids, so, you know, it was pretty good hours, great legal experience, a lot of reading and writing and interpreting law, um, and it was kind of a additional training, essentially. I, I, I... for, I describe it as law school on steroids, pretty yeah, much. Yeah, it sounds like it would be. Yeah. But it's not environmental-based. It's not at all. Were you feeling empty for a bit? Um, or just I, damn busy? Yeah, <laughs> it's in that. yeah I, 
I realized that there wasn't a lot of environmental experience. I was hopeful that I would get some type of administrative law case because a lot of environmental law is about administrative law. And so I was hopeful. That did not happen. But I figured, like I said, it was additional training from law school. And it kind of fit my lifestyle at the time. And it was just a two-year term. And so it just kind of fit really well. And I was worried that I was not progressing, you know, immediately on the path that I had envisioned. But I I think I was patient and it was okay. Like you said, I was so busy at the time. (laughs) You would have been learning so much, though, in that time. Yeah. Okay, so where do you go from there? So after that, I had my third child. Oh, my God. (laughs) Who are you? There was like a decade where I was just like pregnant all the time. Um, It's horrible. I mean, you can't see this. Anyone listening can't see this. But Juliet's being so patient. I keep like sneakily trying to like lower my zipper just a little bit more. And you're the only interview I've ever had where I've actually been like undoing my pants. You're fine. So (laughs) thank you for understanding. I've been there. (laughs) Okay. So I I essentially, when I finished my two-year term, I had my third child. I stayed home for a year to, you know, raise my kids and look. And then as the, that year came to an end, I was ready to go to work. Okay. And I hooked up with folks from the Southern Environmental Law Center, who is, they are a nonprofit law firm that is based in the Southeast and dedicated to environmental protection. I worked with them when I was in Charleston. They had folks working all over the Southeast, and on the campaign that I led in Charleston, I was working with attorneys from the Southern Environmental Law Center. So I reconnected with them, and they told me about the opening at Chattahoochee Riverkeeper. And within a matter of, like, hours and days, I was applying for the job with my former boss, Sally Bethay, and got the job, and that was... Everything. Uh, that, like, everything came together at that moment. All my previous experience, law school, you know, waiting for the right time and having this great opportunity to work at Riverkeeper. And when was that? What year was that? That was 2008. August 2008, I started as general counsel, and I've been with them ever since. What exactly is the organization all about? So the concept of a riverkeeper is that there is a person who is the voice of that water body. They speak for that water body and make sure that the competing uses for that water are not taking advantage of the river system and so that it's being shared equitably and fairly among all the different users. And on the Chattahoochee, there are many. And there are river keepers, there are bay keepers, coast keepers, lake keepers. So the concept is international. We're all under an umbrella of Waterkeeper Alliance. And there are about 340 keepers around the world now. Wow. Yeah. There's one keeper per water body. And we have a jurisdiction within our alliance. And we partner with other keepers and other watershed organizations that might operate in our jurisdiction, but there's always just one keeper. And how many other roles are there within the Chattahoochee Riverkeeper organization? So we are fairly large. Um, We have 17 people on staff and then a whole host of contractors. We are probably the third or fourth largest keeper in the entire alliance. Many are one or two people 
staffed organizations. Is that based on the size of the river system or the size of the amount of problems on the system? More like the size of the problems that the river is facing and the population that depends on that river system. We're in a very large metropolitan area in Atlanta. How many people live in Atlanta? There are almost 6 million people in the greater metro Atlanta area. Oh, my God. But we calculate that there are just over 4 million people who drink from the Chattahoochee River. Which we'll get into because I have so many questions for you about water quality. Mm -hmm. Okay, so 17, are you part of that 17? Yes, I am. And so is the Riverkeeper him or herself? Yes, he is. Is that Jason? That's Jason. Got it. Okay, so how does one Riverkeeper have... Walk me through what his role is, sure. if you don't mind. The Riverkeeper is really the on-the-ground, technical, field person. They're a scientist. They know um, how to test for water quality. He's a boat captain. He understands erosion and sedimentation control issues, stormwater, uh, river flows. Um, so there's a lot of science and technical work that the Riverkeeper handles, and he has a full staff that helps him do that. Is that part of the other 16 people? That's right. Okay, so would you technically be working for him? Well, um, I mean, technically I am the head of the organization, of the staff. Gotcha. So the executive director, in our, and each organization is um, organized differently, depending on how the board of directors chooses to do so. Right. When our organization started in 1994, there was one woman and she had all the roles. She founded the organization. Her name's oh Sally Bethay and she was the Riverkeeper and Executive Director. Oh, that's so much work. So she grew the organization from a one-woman operation 23 years ago. When she left in 2014, we had 12 plus staff people. And at that, even at that time, she was obviously delegating a lot of the work to her staff. When she retired, it became obvious that the role really needed to be split in two, and that's how Jason and I came away with our two roles. We've actually worked together now for nine years. Okay. So we started at the organization together um, back in, well, he was in 2007 and I was 2008. Um, so our organization is split almost in two big categories. One is the programmatic side that Jason leads. That is all the substantive work that we do, the policy, the water testing, the enforcement. The other side of the organization is more outreach and development, and it's a lot of education, uh, outings, events, fundraising, uh, membership, that sort of thing. And so they all complement each other, and there is a lot of crossover. But we have staff that are dedicated in, in both areas. It makes sense to split it into two. Mm-hmm. Okay, and what about you being from the legal side of things? So I started as general counsel, had that role for about six and a half years, and when Sally retired, I transitioned to become executive director. Okay, Perfect. And so I had to learn a whole new skill set. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> yeah. Is the Chattahoochee Riverkeeper a non-for-profit organization? Yes, it is. It's an independent non-profit organization. Although we are related to the Waterkeeper Alliance, we do not receive 
you know, any kind of dedicated funding from them. We're independent. We raise all of our own money. We meet quality standards of the Waterkeeper Alliance. Oh, I see. In order to use the name and the trademark, we have to meet certain quality standards, which are things like having a full-time paid riverkeeper, having a boat where we can patrol, things like that. What about other organizations in the area? Are you guys kind of the main one? Well, we're the only nonprofit organization that is solely dedicated to protecting the Chattahoochee River. Okay. That's all I need to know. That sums that up for me. All right, let's dive right on into the dirty stuff. Excuse the pun. (sighs) There's so much. (laughs) Let me just explain how this all came to be for the people listening. I was at ICAST in Florida, and Louis Cahill from Gink and Gasoline had said, hey, if you're coming through, we'd love to have you in. Maybe you can do a fly tying night to raise some money for the Chattahoochee River. And I've heard of Chattahoochee, but only through, like, old-school country songs. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, you know, being Canadian, I just, yep. I've got my plate full with other mm-hmm. rivers. And uh, and I said, yeah, yeah, I'll come on by. And then before I knew it, I guess somehow it turned into a, a night at the brewery, and I was going to be doing a presentation. And I thought, well, hell, I'm going to have to actually know what I'm talking about to some degree. Mm-hmm. So send me all the papers, and I'll just have a look at what the problem is. Let me figure out, you know, who the bad guy is. Who's the big corporation? Who are you guys fighting? Like, what can I say? Maybe I have some experience with some a similar situation in BC. Mm-hmm. And then he sent me the list of problems. Not mm-hmm. the problem, but the list mm-hmm. of problems. And I realized very quickly that I'm way, way, way out of my league here. I've never experienced such a, a diverse or such a complex situation. Mm-hmm. So as I started diving into the issues and the things and the importance of the Chattahoochee, that's when I reached out to the guys and said, you need to line me up somebody from the okay. organization so that I can understand what's going on. Because as confused as I am, I'm positive there's other people out there who are just as, con- mm-hmm. I'm not going to say concerned yet because I don't know what the problem is, but just as confused. Okay. So maybe we could just back up to the history of the Chattahoochee. I mean, this river is a really important historical river. It is. I mean, it's... I think uh, there was an article written recently about the history of the Chattahoochee River, and I don't know if I'm going to report this exactly correctly, but apparently it is one of the oldest rivers that is locked into its bed, essentially. The way the faults lie, and because of the geology and the granite, it has a very stagnant or uh, structured bed, and it's not constantly uh, moving and changing its trajectory. Um, But it is a home to Native Americans. Chattahoochee means painted rock. It was, I think, uh, inhabited by the Creek Indians. And, you know, it was not... It was free-flowing until probably the uh, 1950s. Okay. Is when the first dams were built. The first dams. Mm -hmm. So how many dams total? How long does the Chattahoochee run? It's 436 miles. Oh, wow. And where do the headwaters sprout from? The headwaters are in the northeast corner of Georgia, above Helen. The river flows south and westwardly. Okay. It is dammed at Lake Lanier or Buford Dam. It passes through Atlanta continues south and westerly and becomes the political jurisdiction between Georgia and Alabama 
at West Point Lake, which is the second major federal impoundment. And then it continues due south until it empties at the Apalachicola River and Apalachicola Bay and into the Gulf of Mexico. And so it passes through Georgia, Alabama, and then Florida. Oh my goodness, it's huge. It's huge, and there it has sister rivers, essentially. The Flint River, which starts at the Atlanta airport and flows south, meets the Chattahoochee at Lake Seminole, which is the last major federal impoundment, and then they empty together to Apalachicola River and Bay. So we call it the ACF Basin, the Apalachicola, Chattahoochee, Flint River Basin. So they're very much tied together and they're managed together by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. Wow, this is so interesting. Oh my goodness. Okay, and then what about from a fishery stance? Because obviously most people listening are fishermen. Mm -hmm. What are the indigenous species of fish? Um, Shoal bass, I know. Yes, I did read about the shoal bass. Yes, stripers. Are they indigenous? As far as I know, I am not an angler or a fisheries expert. That's okay. We can work on that. (laughs) Jason is really your person for fish. Um, Sturgeon, for sure. Although the problem now, of course, is that the sturgeon cannot pass through the dams. And so they're limited in their habitat. And And trout have been introduced? Trout are native to the river, um, particularly in the headwaters. Right. But because there's a tailwater from Buford Dam, the Georgia Department of Natural Resources stopped for rainbow and and brown trout for many years. Right. Um, And then several years ago stopped stocking for rainbow, and now they're naturally reproducing because the tailwater is so cold. Got it. Um, And so I think the there's a a list of you know the. Chattahoochee's one of, if not the southernmost trout fishery in the United States because of Beaufort Dam. Right. Okay, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So we were talking about this, you know, obviously people have inhabited the river for longer than fish have in this region. So it does get hard then for us as people in the fish world mm-hmm. to come in and, and start saying you need to do X, Y, and C for the river because of the fish. When the people are going, we've been here longer than the trout have. So from a qual, I mean, am I, mm-hmm. is that safe? Well, I think, you know, people in Atlanta love the trout fishery. A lot of them love to fish it. And it also is a economic stimulant sure. to the Chattahoochee River National Recreation Area and the metro area. Mm-hmm. And so there are a lot of people, you know, we have um, Trout Unlimited. They're um, very active here. They love the fishery. And um, so there are a lot of people who want to manage for the trout. For sure. Mm -hmm. But then if you look away from that, because, and the reason why I say this, and this is going to sound insensitive and people aren't going to like this, but if I'm looking at a fishery where the fish is not indigenous, I usually don't have much energy to fight for it. I'd rather Mm -hmm. focus on on the rivers where it's always kind of been like that. Mm -hmm. But what's unique about this situation is when I really started looking into what you guys do, I realize this is so much more than just a fish. Oh, I mean, absolutely. This is, this is for, this is people. Right. So what are the problem? What is going on over there? So the biggest, there are two big threats to the Chattahoochee river. One is stormwater. Now we are in a very urban, highly developed area. Right now we're in a big economic boom. 
if you drive around Atlanta, there is development, construction happening everywhere. And so between construction and industrial activity, there is a lot of pollutants that are being regularly washed into our river system. And so that is a big threat to water quality. The other major threat to the river is actually flows, is whether we have enough water. Because, as I mentioned, the river system has multiple dams, and there are only four federal impoundments. There are many more private ones, either for Georgia Power or old mill dams. A couple have been removed, and there have been whitewater courses created in their path, which is fantastic to bring recreation to the river. But it's highly regulated and managed, and there are a lot of competing uses, primarily between the metro Atlanta region and the rest of the state of Georgia, and then Alabama and Florida. What is the CFS supposed to be in the river? On a typical, you know, summer day, because here we are, mm-hmm. what are we, we're in July right now. Mm-hmm. On a typical summer day, what would the CFS have been 200 years ago? Well, that I don't know, honestly. And I don't know that anybody knows. Data and modeling on the river is a highly contentious issue. Mm. I will tell you this. Um, for the last 40 years, there has been a flow standard on the river of 750 CFS just... In, at a critical point in the city of Atlanta for 40 years. Okay. In the last year and a half, the state has removed that standard from its water quality regulations, and the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers has adopted a lower flow regime based on that removal. And so now, during the winter months, we go down to 650 CFS. As far as Chattahoochee Riverkeeper is concerned, that is not sufficient flow. The most critical issue is because at that point in Atlanta, there are multiple wastewater discharges that are occurring, and we need a certain amount of flow to assimilate that waste. Did I read somewhere that there's been situations where you guys have had like 200? Well, that's highly unusual. There have been a couple of blips where... It's a complicated system, um, which you've probably gathered because you have the Army Corps of Engineers that's managing flows out of the federal dams. You have Georgia Power, who is releasing a certain amount of water out of their hydropower dams. That's our um, regional energy company. And then you have a lot of uh, utilities that are withdrawing water for water supply and utilities who are discharging wastewater. And all of these stakeholders have to coordinate. They'd have to. (laughs) When water is being released, withdrawn, discharged, and there have been a couple of blips where the coordination fell through. Okay, that makes sense. Yes, and all of a sudden you have a dry bed of the Chattahoochee River or a major lake in it. And that has happened, but it is unusual. Okay, all right, I get Mm -hmm. it. What's the next issue? Um, and when you say runoff, like you're talking about runoff coming off of like streets. Yes, streets, oil and grease, construction sites, sediment, industrial sites. We're looking at metals, uh, bacteria. 
Got it. Uh, turbidity. Do you no longer have the trees to be able to capture a lot of this runoff? So in our state, we have requirements for vegetative buffers along streams. Okay. It's minimal. It's 25 feet, which Ooh, is not no. enough. Some jurisdictions have 50, 75, maybe even 100 feet, but it's rare and there are variances that are granted to bypass them. And so a lot of what we do is make sure that those uh, buffer requirements are being maintained and adhered to and what, that they're not being violated. And so we've had multiple instances every year right. uh, where we're trying to enforce the buffer requirements so that exactly if you have an industrial site or a construction site and there's rain that there's that buffer between the waterway and the facility so that, you know, velocity of flow could be uh, slowed down and pollutants have an opportunity to filter down into the soil and all the things that buffers do. And this matters because, did I read right, that people drink from the cha- the water? Drinking it water is. comes from it there? It is. That's exactly right. I mean, do you hear I can't even get the words out of my mouth? <laughs> I was on their river today teaching and... Mm-hmm. I'm going to be totally honest with you. Mm-hmm. It just it says an out-of-towner. I had a woman tell me that we were mad because the E. coli was high, like an E. coli rate. And, you know, that obviously freaked me out being pregnant. And then mm-hmm. as I'm in the river, I'm seeing beer cans and pop cans float down all day. And then a striper, co- I'd never seen this before, mm-hmm. a half I don't know what happened to the other half of it, but half of a striper goes oh. by me. Oh, and no. there's this little boy who's obviously never seen a fish in his life, you know, screaming oh, after no. it. There's more families that I've ever seen playing in the water. And mm-hmm. all I can see are children putting water and swimming, oh. you know, getting water mm-hmm. in their mouths. And I, I, I honestly felt like I was in a twilight zone. Oh, no. Can you help, like, help make sure. me understand what I'm seeing? Well, I was on the river, too, today, and there were a lot of people out. And there are a lot of people who will throw a tube in and a cooler, and they just don't have the right etiquette or respect for nature, and they'll take their cans and they'll throw them overboard. And we see that all the time. Our organization does a lot of trash cleanups. Yeah, I saw that. Every year we pull about 20 tons of trash out of the river. It's a big issue. Trash is a big issue. But where's this E. coli? I mean, so, where does E. coli come from? E. coli is essentially a type of bacteria, and it's an indicator. We test for it as an indicator for other sources of bacteria. And it pollutes the river generally through either sewage overflows or stormwater. The river is actually in such better condition today than it was 10, 20 years ago. Really? Oh, goodness. There's a whole history of the river being extremely polluted, um, primarily by the city of Atlanta, for not maintaining its wastewater collection and treatment system. Oh. But today, and I can go into that if you want, but today, water quality in the river generally meets our U.S. EPA water quality standards for first-hand contact. Okay. There are times when it doesn't, it's usually after a heavy rain. And the coli comes from, like I mentioned, there could be a sewer or manhole overflow or pet waste. 
Right. Those are primarily the biggest culprits. Okay. And we advise people, you know, don't go in the river after a really heavy rain for probably 24 hours. It's just good practice. And especially if you have open cuts and wounds and you have maybe a depressed immune system. But otherwise, the river is pretty, pretty good. Okay. In pretty good health, despite the trash, you know. And the occasional dead fish, right, <laughs> which yeah. I saw today too. I saw a did dead you? trout. Okay. I don't know why it was dead. I was, but my daughter did not like that. <laughs> okay, got it. But this is the main source of drinking water. Then. It is. I for did 4 read that right. People, that's right. Wow. I mean, okay. So this is really unique because this isn't just reaching out to a small, you know, niche of people. This is for the entire city of Atlanta. Have you found that that the community cares? Not as much as one would think. As I would imagine there are a lot of people who live in this area who do not know there's a river that runs through the city, do not know where their drinking water comes from, and a lot of what we do is education. It's yeah. startling to think that, you know, people think that water comes out of a tap, but don't think beyond that source. Yeah, it's just a <laughs> big pot somewhere. Exactly. <laughs> Coming up, Juliet and I continue our conversation. Again, thank you to Fishbrain for making this episode possible. Check them out at www.fishbrain.com or subscribe to the app and receive interesting fishing facts, techniques, and destinations. The biggest threats, like I said, by far, are the stormwater, the pollution that's coming off of the streets and industrial sites, and whether or not we have enough water in the river to assimilate our waste and to keep fish and wildlife uh, healthy and that we have enough water, you know, for now, for municipal uses and for future generations. Okay, so now that we know what the problems are, Mm -hmm. what are the solutions? The solution for having enough water is conservation and efficiency. For all of the uses that we demand of the river, drinking water, industrial process water, hydropower, irrigation, we expect the river to provide for all of these uses. So we have to make sure that we're using the water as efficiently as possible. Are there limitations set throughout the state? There are some. There are some, but they're not sufficient. There's a lot more that we can do to conserve water and be more efficient. How many days a week are you allowed to water your lawn? Well, um, normally you're allowed to water your lawn anytime. I mean, that the, the, the general practice is you can water whenever. Then there are varying levels of drought. Right now we're in a level two drought. And so um, you're only allowed to water new plantings certain times of the day, first thing in the morning, late in the day, and then it's alternating schedule depending on your your building number, house number, that sort of thing. Okay, what would you like to see changed? Well, one thing that we can do, and some counties have already done this, is to require that all the old stock of toilets and shower heads, all the water fixtures, be replaced with modern, efficient fixtures. Oh, okay. That's an easy thing to do. It creates jobs, and we can gain, some have estimated, 
more than uh, 100 million gallons annually. Really? Does yeah. the state help to fund the replacement of those no, fixtures? No, they don't. And that's a problem. The state does not really invest much money in water conservation. How is that possible when it's such an important part of the that's state? That's a great question. <laughs> we wonder that all the time. We advocate for more money in the state budget. Um, what the state has done traditionally is want to build more dams and reservoirs. So their answer to water supply concerns is capturing more water, which one is environmentally harmful and two is really not efficient. You lose a lot of water through evaporation. They're extremely expensive, hundreds of millions of dollars. And we feel strongly that if we took a fraction of that money and invested it in plumbing jobs and, um, you know, high-efficiency fixtures, we could go a long way. Of course, energy efficiency also plays into that because um, energy is water here in the Chattahoochee. That's why we have some of these dams. They create hydropower. And so if we're more efficient with energy, then we'll be using less water. What else would you guys like to see over there? Um, we have a heavy agricultural area in the southern part of the state, southwest Georgia, which includes part of the Chattahoochee. Um, there are a lot of conservation gains that need to be made in the agricultural community and the types, the ways that they water their, their crops, types of crops that they grow. Um, the state has for decades been just handing out permits to drill for well water, for groundwater, without really doing an assessment of how much water there is in the aquifers, how healthy it is for the system to be withdrawing water from um, the wells and then irrigating. Um, and in that part of the state, the geology is very porous. And so whatever you're taking out of the stream or the well is very connected. Um, and so one of the things that we want the state to do is to have a um, clear understanding of how much water we have to use and then um, meter all of the wells and um, know how much is actually being used. Do they have their own in-house people or do they ever come to you guys for data? The state really doesn't ask us for data, um, and I don't know that we have the capacity really to do that kind of work. We're asking the state to do it. They have the funds on the contractors and all that. We are part of a non-governmental uh, tri-state group called the Apalachical Chattahoochee Flint Stakeholders Group, which has been working now since 2009 to collect data about the river systems so that we can understand who's using what and how much there really is and come up with a water sharing plan. Right, okay. And that has happened. It's not perfect, but it's a good start. And, of course, it's a compromise between all of the users and all the states. Yeah. Um, the governors of the three states have rejected it, unfortunately. Why? Uh, like to because them. they're they're involved in litigation, and I think they see the the best solution is you know winner takes all type of thing. Wow. Yeah. Well, thirty years later, we're still in litigation, so it's a failed strategy. So there's not really one bad guy. There's just no. a whole posse of bad yeah, guys. Yeah, it's just you know it's a river system. 
Um, it's one of the smallest river systems that feeds a major metropolitan area in mm-hmm. the U.S. Because when I looked it up, I was shocked. I thought it was going to be so much bigger. Yeah. And, and Atlanta was located here because of a railroad system initially. It wasn't located here because of some great source of water. The Chattahoochee is a creek compared to probably a lot of rivers that it you're familiar is. with. It yeah. really is, yeah. It's really small. Um, and so we just have to, and we're very high up in the watershed. Mm-hmm. Which is even worse. Which is even worse. And so we just have to learn how to be as efficient with the river system, with the water that we have. Um, I th- There are some estimates of how much water each person uses on average in this region, and it's about 105 gallons per day. There are parts of the country that are lower than that, that are probably in the 90s, low 90s. So we have a little ways to go to, um, you know, be more efficient and leave more water in the river. And not only for fish and wildlife, but for communities downstream from us and the Apalachicola Bay and the Gulf. Okay, and do you feel pretty hopeful about Absolutely. We've made a lot of progress. In fact, in 2015... The regional commission that governs the metropolitan Atlanta area reduced their water supply demand projections by 25% based on two factors. One, their population projections were just astronomical and they had you know, revised them and been more uh, realistic. But two, they had really made a lot of gains in conservation. And so between those two things... You know, we're headed in the right direction of not needing as much water as we once projected. But this area is still projected to grow, so we have to do more. Do you need the help from people uh, from out of state and out of country even? Or are you looking, I mean, really, is this a not-in-my-backyard thing? Do you need the help from people in Georgia? We need the help of people in Georgia and Florida and Alabama. We need the three states to cooperate we do need some federal help because these dams are managed by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. And so we do need cooperation in Congress um, from time to time to do smart water management and for the Army Corps of Engineers to change its practices some. But for the most part, this is a local issue. Each person within Atlanta needs to recognize that we have a valuable resource. It's our lifeblood, and the region cannot continue to grow if we don't have enough clean water and everybody has a hand in protecting it. Whether it's not throwing trash out their window, you know, picking up their pet waste, turning off the faucet when they brush their teeth, uh, not throwing fat soils and greases down the sink when they cook, all of these little Measures when they add up together make a huge difference on the health of the river. And I think it's a matter of education and and advocacy and ultimately enforcement. There's always a bad actor, and Chattahoochee Riverkeeper is, at the end of the day, a watchdog organization. And so, you know, when push comes to shove, we're not afraid to, to do what's right. Do you have any river systems in the world that have been in a similar situation as the Chattahoochee that inspire you or that have really come through and ended up on top? It's hmm, a good question. Or is it just a doomsday everywhere we look? 
you know, there there are successes. I've I have seen news where dams have been removed on rivers in the west, and cities are installing you know renewable energy sources, so they're not relying on coal, um, solar, wind, other things. There's a lot of successes that are occurring, but I will say that water every day becomes more and more of a precious resource. And, you know, there's still so much population growth and we are working with a limited amount, you know, limited supply. So, you know, I am hopeful, you know, you have to be hopeful to do this kind of conservation work. <laughs> um but I'm, I don't know that there's an exact situation like the Chattahoochee somewhere else. There could be. I just don't know it. I mean, I look at the Colorado River a lot and read books about it. It's a shame because that river, at times, most of the time, doesn't even reach its mouth, you know, to the Gulf, Baja, California, you know, I, and that is scary. That is a really scary thought to me that people would use up the water so much and divert it for so many, uh, you know, other uses that, you know, some may or may not think are critical to, to not even allow the water to reach its final source. That's scary. So I hope we never are in a situation like that. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you so much for listening. 